This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter. Mixed martial arts enthusiasts, welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I am your host, Aaron Bronstetter. UFC 283 is in the rearview mirror, and we had the thrill, the agony, just like every other UFC card. And, you know, we have the fans in Brazil. We got to experience the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. We see Jose Aldo announced to be an upcoming member of the UFC Hall of Fame. Gilbert Burns with a beautiful first-round submission win over Neil Magny. Jessica Andrade with one of the most lopsided performances we've seen in women's mixed martial arts in some time. But when the going uh, gets good, sometimes the going can get bad just as quickly in mixed martial arts. Brandon Moreno defeats Davis and Figueredo. He regains, I guess, the undisputed flyweight championship of the world. It unifies the interim and, I guess, disputed title, you would call it by defeating Davis and Figueredo. And in the main event, Jamal Hill sends Glover Teixeira into retirement. 50-44 on all three cards. This was uh, an interesting night of mixed martial arts from top to bottom. Why don't we start with the top? Jamal Hill is your new, sort of, undisputed light heavyweight champion of the world, defeating Glover Teixeira. Of course, we have Yuri Prokashka, who is recovering from uh, a shoulder injury. We don't know when he's going to be back. He posted a very, uh, shall I say, risque video after the fact, if you interpret it uh, as one could interpret it. But uh, if you interpret it literally, I think it means he's, uh, he's coming for his title that Jamal Hill is currently holding. Um, but of course, Jamal Hill could very well defeat Yuri Prokhashka if he performs the way that he did on Saturday night against Glover Teixeira because this was the thing going into this fight. Jamal Hill hadn't fought the best level of competition before a title fight. So, like, he's fought a good level of competition. I'm not trying to take anything away from him and who he's beaten. But let's face it. He's only fought outside of the apex on two occasions in his UFC career. This isn't the guy with a dearth of experience fighting at the highest of levels in front of a massive, rabid crowd like he did on Saturday night. I think there were a lot of questions about Jamal Hill that he answered in totality with that performance. Could he withstand five rounds? Could he have the cardio for that? I don't know. Did he have the ability to withstand the ground assaults of Glover Teixeira that enabled him to become a light heavyweight champion in the first place? One of the most prolific ground games we've seen in the light heavyweight division in UFC history. Could he hold his own on the ground against Glover Teixeira? Would he be able to win the fight if it went into the later rounds? Had Glover Teixeira been able to hold on and eventually, as he always does, get opportunistic, find something, and get a finish? Well, Jamal Hill answered all of those questions. Any doubts that you might have had about Jamal Hill were likely erased on Saturday night. And I think that that's what makes his future championship prospects so exciting. Because he doesn't have a lot of holes in his game. You can't look at Jamal Hill and say... I think this is what someone could do to take advantage of his weaknesses because there aren't really a whole lot of glaring weaknesses in his game. If you look at what he was able to do on the ground against Glover Teixeira defensively and also by defending the takedowns of Glover Teixeira, what he was able to do defensively on his feet when it came to takedown defense, I thought it was incredibly impressive. And I think that when you look at what Jamal Hill did on the feet from a striking standpoint, he showed a very, very diverse attack. I don't think we'd seen 
those sort of head kicks from him that, that rattled Glover Teixeira over and over and over again in that fight. Now, how much of an impact did that war with Yuri Prokashka have on Glover Teixeira? Did we get the best Glover Teixeira on Saturday night? I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that question. Well, at least not until we see Jamal Hill a couple more times out against some younger competition. Because as we've seen in mixed martial arts, depending on your age, your career could just fall off a cliff. Like you could just get dramatically worse as you get older. I thought that the Davidson Figueredo that we saw on Saturday night was the worst version of Davidson Figueredo that we've seen. And subsequently, Brandon Moreno looked the best that we've ever seen him. And he's 29 years old. The only champion now in his 20s in the UFC. So when you look at what we saw from Jamal Hill, 31 years old, in his prime right now, and not to mention has very little miles on him in terms of his career. So he might not even be in his prime yet. He's still getting better at this age. I think really the best could be yet to come from Jamal Hill because that performance, if it's any indication, he could be champion for a long time. And if you would have asked me going into that fight, hey, if Jamal Hill somehow manages to beat Glover, how's it, how's it going to look? And how do... You know, how does he stack up against Yuri Prokashka odds-wise? I would have said, you know, Jamal Hill finds a finish in the first round, gets a knockout. And then against Yuri Prokashka, he's the underdog because we still have a lot of unanswered questions about him. I think it's better, that, you know, for Jamal Hill, maybe not from uh, the standpoint of an opponent being able to prepare for him because I think they got to see a lot more of his game than we're accustomed to seeing. But I think that Jamal Hill did himself a massive service by performing the way that he did on Saturday. He looked fantastic. His striking looked on point. His defense looked fantastic, both striking and grappling defense. This is somebody who is going to be a very tough out for anybody in the light heavyweight division. So kudos to the new champion, Jamal Hill. Looked great in his performance against Glover Teixeira. And now let's segue to Teixeira himself, who after the fight, I don't think it was surprising that he retired because I think that he was only going to fight championship bouts for the rest of his career. So had he beaten Jamal, maybe he continues and defends the title. But losing to Jamal, I don't think that at his age, he wants to work his way back up to being a title challenger. I just don't think it's in the cards for him. I mean, he'd have to face Uncle Ayev probably, uh, you know, potentially. Somebody of that caliber. Maybe a rematch with Jan Bojovic, which could be a winnable fight for him. But they're starting to be, you know, a queue is starting to build right now at light heavyweight. So even if Yuri isn't next, certainly not going to be Glover again. Could be Ankalaev. And then if Ankalaev wins that fight against Jamal Hill, which is a possibility, of course, then Yuri would probably step in at that point in time. So win or lose for this next fight for Jamal Hill, I still think that Glover would have to really go backwards in the queue. And by the time he gets another title shot, he's 44, 45 years old. I think he was realistic about the situation. And I think in Brazil, I, you know what? The saddest thing to me was that everybody left. Like Glover's in the cage. It looks like an empty, like a, a giant arena with like hundreds of fans there. Like the ability to seat 16, 17,000 people. And you've got like hundreds of fans in the stands. I know it's 3.15 a.m. at that point in time. So I'm not certainly blaming anybody for leaving. But I think it speaks to the fans in Brazil that they they want to see results or they're walking. <laughs> you know, like it's it's not not necessarily a bad thing about them. Like I just think that they're that passionate about it that if you're not win if you're not the winner that night, 
they look at you like you're the loser that night. And uh, I, I don't know if I feel that way about Glover Teixeira announcing his retirement at his age, 43 years old, coming off of a championship win two years ago or whatever it was. That's a guy that should be saluted by the Brazilian people, that should be giving him a standing ovation. And to me, it really bummed me out to see just fans just leave and get home, you know, try to get home. I know, it's, again, I know it's 3.15 a.m., but that was a bummer to see it end that way for Glover Teixeira. In Brazil, biggest fight of his career, arguably, and that's the way that uh, it ends for him. Which is tough, tough to see. Tough to see. But uh, really not as tough to see as the fight itself, because Glover was getting pieced up. Like I mentioned, 50-44 on all three judges' scorecards for Jamal Hill. And uh, I think there were a lot of questions about whether or not his corner should have allowed him to go out in the fifth round. And John Hackleman, one of his senior coaches, um, you know, back when he first moved to America, he was a top cha- training partner for Chuck Liddell under John Hackleman. And Hackleman was saying, yeah, we should stop this fight, but was kind of overridden by the more senior coaches of Glover Teixeira in that moment. And, you know, I kind of don't blame them. We saw what Al- Alex Pereira did against Israel Adesanya back in November. He was down on the cards, and I know it's a totally different situation because in this case, Glover's getting completely pieced up. Like at the time, I guess it's what, 40 to 36? Um, or 40 to 35, rather. His path to victory isn't great at that point in time. But with Glover, as everybody knows, he gets you to the ground and he can find the finish. He can find a way to win that fight. And he did that in the fifth round. So if there was something you wanted to see from Glover Teixeira in that fifth round to say, well, maybe his coaches did do the right thing, it was what he delivered in the first half of that fifth round. But at the same time, I think they knew, like, this is it. We're going to let Glover go out there for that fifth round because if he doesn't get that last opportunity, is he ever going to forgive us? Is he ever going to forgive himself? Is he, is he going to lose sleep for years thinking, man, if I just got that last round, I could have taken him down and found a sub. At that point, it's up to the doctors and the referees to stop the fight, not his corner, in my opinion. Like, the corner could have stopped it, but I think the onus is on the medical officials and the referee at that point in time to say, listen, I've seen enough, or that cut is too bad, or whatever it is that you want to do in order to say this fight should be halted, that's that's on them, not on, on the corner. So I think that Glover Teixeira, you know, had a gutsy performance as he always does, was durable as all get out like he always is, was still in the fight for the entire time that it lasted like he always is. Even though, like I said, it was a pretty lopsided fight at any time. I just thought, in that fifth round, when Glover took him down, I was like, this could be, not only would this be the Hail Mary of Hail Marys, this is like a Hail Mary, and then you get an onside kick, and then you do another Hail Mary when you're down like 13 points. Or even down 14, and then you kick, you do the extra point, uh, the two-point conversion. Like, that's how down he was. That was like Jacksonville Jaguars down 27 nothing to the Chargers. That kind of a comeback. Like the Pats down, I think it was 28-3 to or whatever it was in the Super Bowl when they came back against the uh, Atlanta Falcons. Or was it Tampa? I can't remember. I think it was New England. But I digress. That, that's the kind of comeback that it was for Jamal Hill. Uh, for Glover Teixeira, rather, against Jamal Hill. So Glover Teixeira retires, and uh, man, he was just one of my favorite fighters to watch. I, I love opportunistic fighters. Fighters that at any point in time can snatch victory from the mouth of defeat that can take someone down 
and get creative and find ways to win fights that take damage and are still somehow able to turn the tables on their opponents and find a way to win the fight. That's Glover Teixeira in a nutshell. And I think when Charles Oliveira retires, we're going to have the same kind of thoughts about him. Just warriors in this sport. Guys that were never out of a fight. So kudos to, uh, to Glover Teixeira on a great career, brilliant career. Now, Brandon Moreno, co-main event, looked phenomenal. Phenomenal in that fight. And it's weird because now we've kind of got this revisionist history. Like, a lot of people are like, ah, oh, Moreno was definitely the better man in that quadrilogy. He, you know, we, we saw what he's made of. But going into that fight, I thought to myself, hey, Davis and Figueredo basically won two of those last three fights. If not for that, that groin strike in the first fight that, that lost him a point, he cruises. And a lot of people thought he should have won that fight even with the point deduction. He cruised in that fight. I thought in the third fight, God, I think it was three knockdowns in that fight, made it looked, look, you know, like he was the one who deserved to win that fight. Going into this fourth fight, I thought, you know, Brandon Moreno's having some issues with his, uh, with uh, James Krause, some coaching issues. He didn't look great against Kai Car France. All of these red flags, and I was like, we've seen what Figueroa can do against this guy. Boy, was I wrong. Whew. I was as wrong as I've ever been on any fight. I like. Uh, first off, Figueroa did not look good in that fight. He looked like a shell of himself. He he was not throwing with the same kind of conviction that we're used to seeing him throw with, with the intention. It just didn't seem like he was in that fight at all. It seemed like Moreno was lapping him, like he was a step ahead of him for the entirety of that fight. And I know that Figueroa did get the second round on the, the judges' scorecards. I personally gave it to Moreno. I, I'd have to go back and watch and see. Maybe um, I missed some impactful strikes or something along those lines. I don't know. But I thought that Moreno won those first two rounds and, of course, also the third round before the doctors stopped it. Um, a legal strike that landed that uh, basically blew up the eye of Davis and Figueredo. Wasn't able to see out of that eye, and that, that was a wrap. So, uh, Brandon Moreno, congratulations. The, the flyweight champion, Davis and Figueredo, lays down the gloves and retires from the flyweight division, moving to bantamweight. That was weird. Can you imagine you're watching that and there's no sound? Like you're at a bar and whatever, they're playing the like a bowl game or something, or uh, sorry, NFL playoffs. If I guess the bowl season's over, NFL playoffs, and like that's the sound that they're blaring through. I think the NFL playoffs were kind of done by that point in time, anyways. I might be wrong, but either way, imagine there's no sound and you just see the figure eight laying the gloves in. You probably think he's retiring, but uh, instead moving to bantamweight. Where I'll be honest, I don't like his prospects at all. I was on the couchside judges with uh, Scott Fontana and Dan Urban, and they were talking about the chances of Figueredo fighting for a bantamweight championship in the next 18 months. And I said, and I think Scott said 15%, Dan said 25%, and I said 0.3%. 0.3%. And I stand by that. I just don't see who Davis and Figueredo is beating in that top five that would get him a title shot. I do not see him beating Sanhagen. I don't see him beating Piotr Jan. I don't see him beating Mirab Dualashvili. Like, that might be the best matchup out of all of them for him, but... With the way that Moreno was taking him down in that fight, Duwalas really probably takes him down too. I don't think he'd beat Rob Font. I don't think he'd beat Sean O'Malley. I don't think he'd beat Cejudo. Although they train together, I don't think they'd fight. But certainly wouldn't beat Aljamain Sterling, in my opinion. So I, I just don't know what is going to be next for Figueredo. Turning 36, like, for a bantamweight, that's never the age you want to be. That's like when things start going downhill for bantamweights and smaller fighters in general. So uh, I, I don't know what... We're going to see from Davis and Figueredo from here. And I hope for the best for him. I've always enjoyed watching him. He's just always been a great action fighter. Very versatile fighter. 
But uh, yeah, Saturday was not his night. He was not fighting well at all. And Brandon Moreno on the flip side was leading the dance the whole way. Looked great. Looks like he's going to be facing Pantoja next. I really think that's the only fight you can make, barring some sort of training camp freak injury or something to either of these guys. Like, that's the fight to make in the flyweight division. If Dana White was there, I think he'd he'd commit to that one on fight night. Like, that's how obvious of a, of a next title fight that is. So Moreno, congratulations to him. He looked awesome. Just awesome in that fight. And um, he, I think we're turning the page now. This is We have the Demetrius Johnson chapter of the flyweight division. Very long chapter. A shorter chapter, which is the Figueredo-Moreno rivalry chapter. And now we're moving to flyweight division, the new class. We've got Weasel Weisel. That's a weird reference. If you got that reference, congratulations to you. Very weird reference. But uh, there are all these new up-and-coming challengers right now that have never competed for the Flyweight Championship. Like I said, the likes of Pantoja, Tatsuro Taira, young guy, looks great, Muhammad Mukhayev. There are a lot of great up-and-comers right now in that Flyweight division. Uh, I think Charles Johnson's quite good. I think we're going to see some good stuff from him in the, in the next little while. A lot of guys are contender series coming up, like, that's a really, really good division for young talent. I think that this is, we're turning the page right now on the Figueredo Moreno rivalry. And Moreno is, at age 29, is leading in, ushering in this new class of flyweights. He's like the guy going into, into 12th grade. And now we've got all these grade 9, grade 10 guys that are, are trying to, to step up to the other big men on campus. Keep making these high school analogies. But uh, either way, great win for Moreno. As I mentioned off the top, Gilbert Burns defeats Neil Magny. Made it look fairly easy. I don't think he absorbed a single strike in that fight. Um, take Neil Magny down and had, I think, two and a half minutes to work and uh, was able to find a, a beautiful arm triangle choke against Gilbert Burns. Uh, sorry, against Neil Magny. Man, I mean, Gilbert Burns is just perpetually underrated. Like, he hurt Kamaru Usman badly in their first fight when Usman was the best pound for pound fighter in the sport. Against Shemaev, he was a big underdog and nearly came through. Very, very close fight against a guy that I think people will still say is a future champion one day, whether it's middleweight or welterweight. But uh, Gilbert Burns, you know, if you thought that for whatever reason he was done, no siree. Great win over Neil Magny. And next for him, I think you're going to look at Bilal Muhammad or Colby Covington. So I think that's going to be a good matchup for him either way, regardless of which of those guys he faces, because... If they're going to look to take him down, we know how crafty Gilbert is with his takedowns and with his, his uh, sorry, his takedown defense, his submissions. And then on the feet, Gilbert's got big big power, good hands, and the, the reach is not going to be quite what we saw in that Magni fight. So um, eager to see what's next for Gilbert Burns. He looked fantastic. As he usually does against this kind of opponent as well. Like, I think going to welterweight, I can't remember if it was his welterweight debut. I don't think it was his welterweight debut, but... Early in his welterweight career was the last time they fought in Brazil against when he fought Demian Maia. And from there, he's just been a freight train. Uh, of course, two setbacks against Usman and, and Hamza Shemaev, but, I mean, if you're going to lose the two guys in the welterweight division, those are probably the two guys. I think him versus Colby would be a lot of fun. We'll see how that goes. Burns told an interesting story after the fight. He was doing his press conference and said he saw Colby uh, Covington, I think it was like at a... What did he say it was? It was like a, a Brazilian concert or something. He went to go see some Brazilian music and Colby was at the casino or something like that. And Colby, I think, called him over. And Gilbert was like, oh man, like I, I think we're going to get into it here. 
And Burns walked over to him, and Colby said, "Listen, man, I'm a big fan of yours. I, you know, I this persona I have. I just, I just did it to make money, but I really like the way you fight. Like, couldn't have been nicer to him, apparently. So, we haven't heard from Colby Covington in a long, long time. And I would not be surprised when Colby Covington comes back if we see a little bit of a different Colby Covington. I might be wrong. Maybe I would be. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised if we don't. But I certainly wouldn't be surprised if we do. I think that." Uh, that situation with Masvidal outside of the cage might have humbled him a little bit, but I might be wrong. Maybe he's more brash than ever. Who knows? But anybody who talks to Colby Covington like in a private setting, and myself included, I've always thought he was a very, very nice, polite guy. But then those cameras turn on and he just turns into a different animal. He morphs into the this persona that he's really owned and taken on. So... Um, I'm eager to see how he fights when he gets back. I, you know, I think sometimes, in a strange way, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I think people are wanting to see Colby Covington come back. I think him stepping out of the, the limelight for a bit might do him a world of good. I think people had a little bit too much Colby Covington. And of course, a lot of the stuff he says is uh, not great. Not great. But like I said, maybe we'll see a different version of him. Maybe I'm just being hopeful. Who knows? Jessica Andrade defeats Lauren Murphy, 30-25, 30-25, 30-26. You very well could have made a case it was 30-24. Like, this was a very lopsided fight. And Andrade gets the uh, a great win. And I want to read something that Lauren Murphy wrote because a lot of people were wanting this fight to be stopped by her corner between the second and third rounds. You know, in my opinion, I kind of side with Lauren here. Like, her husband's in her corner. Sean Madden's a great coach. Like She's got a good Carrington Banks. Good corner. A very, very smart people in this sport. That have been in the sport for, I think, their entire lives, pretty much. Or in some sort of combat sports dialect. And if the referee's not stopping it and the doctor's not stopping it... And the, I, I don't even know if the doctor was in there looking. I can't, I can't even remember. But she didn't get knocked down in that fight. That doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of damage. He took a lot of damage. It's the most significant strikes landed in a three-round fight since Diaz versus Cerrone. But at the same time, nobody knows her better than her corner. And I know that a lot of people say the corner often won't do the, the right thing in those situations or what people perceive to be the right thing. But if it's that bad, the doctor needs to step in or the referee needs to step in. Or they need to say, Lauren, are you are you ready to like are you okay to continue? I don't know if I heard that from her corner. But at the same time, after the fight, she seemed pretty lucid. She was talking to I heard her say something to Andrage. After the fight, she sounded like her voice was pretty clear. She was fighting back throughout the third round. She landed more significant strikes in that round than any of the previous two. Doesn't necessarily mean anything, because so did Andrage. I think Andrage landed ninety five significant strikes in that third round, like that was a that was about as lopsided a round as we've seen in women's MMA, uh, in the UFC, at least. It was a tough round to watch, and I understand why people thought that their corner, her corner, should have stopped it. But there are two types of people here, two camps, in my opinion, of the people that wanted to see that fight called in between rounds. There are the people that like to say, "Bill, oh, the corner doesn't know what they're doing," or "The corner, blah blah blah," and rip the corner, those in the corner, like they're, you know committing malpractice and then i think there are those that are just they they're they're squeamish and they don't want to see lauren murphy take any more damage they don't want to see 
they want to see her fight another day. And they care about her health. They're not there just to be like, oh, that they should have done this and they should have done that. I think at that point they're getting uncomfortable and they realize that her path to victory is really, really low. Like, we're talking less than a percentage chance, maybe two per- less than 2% chance of her winning at that point in time. I-, I would be interested to know what the odds were. They're probably like minus 4,000 going into the last round. I just don't think that there was much of a path for Lauren Murphy at that point in time. And I, I imagine her corner probably thought that she had a shot. They'd see what she's doing in camp. They see how she came into this fight, if she was injured or anything along those lines. I oftentimes will give the corner the benefit, the benefit of the doubt, especially with her husband in the corner. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm being careless here. I don't know. I have no idea. But if she's coming out and defending it and saying that her corner did the right thing, and that she told her corner, let me read it to you instead of me, you know, paraphrasing what she says. Here's what she said. Um, is anyone arguing that Glover's corner should have stopped it? I did see people argue that Glover's corner should have stopped it, but I'll continue. I saw him after the fights and he looked way worse than me. Both his eyes are closed and he took a ton of unanswered shots. What about when Ortega got a boxing lesson in the middle of the fight for Max? They did stop that fight. <laughs> they did stop that one between rounds. But again, back to what she said. Look at Darren Elkin's entire career. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there have been fights where Darren Elkins looks like he's done. And he actually comes back and wins. That's happened before. So she brings up three really interesting examples there. But again, I'll continue. It's a fist fight. Sometimes we get beat up. Sometimes it might make you uncomfortable. She puts that in stars. That is your problem. I signed up for this. I got beat up, not murdered. I have two black eyes today and that's it. I'm going to be just fine. Sometimes getting my butt kicked, I'll uh, again paraphrase, is part of the job. I'm okay with it, and if you're an MMA fan, you should be too. I was responsive in the corner, not slashed over or disheartened. I told my corner I would do what they wanted, and I tried like hell to make it happen. I didn't have some of the tools I needed to make it happen, but that doesn't mean I should have pulled like you don't... I should have pulled like you don't have a chance. I can't stand it when people say she had no chance of winning, so just stop the fight. Where is the spirit of competition in that? Y'all drive me nuts. Because we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. Cynthia Calvillo's corner called it and yelled message her to kill herself. I'm so over people criticizing my corner. I changed it after the Valentina fight and it's still not enough for you. It's more than enough for me. These guys are some of the best coaches I've ever had. I'm so grateful they let me fight till the end. I am tough. It's one of my favorite things about myself and, and for me. It's a joy to display my heart to the whole world. Most of you won't have any idea what I'm talking about and that's fine. Most media and half the fans will find a way to, I guess, crap on it, I'll, I'll say, as they have for most of my career. I'll never, I've never let it deter me before, and I won't now. Tell y'all what. When you guys compete and coach at a high enough level that you end up in the corner of a top five UFC fight, you guys can corner any way you want. So that's, uh, that's what Lauren Murphy had to say. And I think she does have a lot of valid points here. Like, I don't think that uh, she's speaking out of both sides of her mouth. I think that she... She is tough, and she always has been, and that has been one of her best traits. She is able to tough it out, and she is able to be strong for the entirety of a fight. How many times has she been finished in, uh, in MMA? I'm going to just take a quick look. I'm pretty sure against Valentina, if I recall correctly, she was. Yeah, she was TKO'd by Valentina. That's her only time she's been finished. Was against the, the best pound-for-pound, possibly the second best pound-for-pound female fighter in the sport. Who's just been running through everybody. 
is it a badge of honor that she survived that fight? Maybe, maybe for her it is. Maybe for her confidence, they wanted her to continue to fight and see what she was made of. I don't know what the reasons are. But at the same time, like I, I think it's unfair to go after a fighter's corner. They do a whole training camp for this. They they pour their hearts and souls, not just the fighter, but the coaches too, into into doing whatever it takes to win. Now, can it have long-term health effects on her? Absolutely. But they, they know those risks. And sometimes fighters, like Glover said after his fight, sometimes fighters are too, good for, too tough for their own good. And sometimes coaches know that, and they'll let them fight on. But you have to imagine there's a method to the madness. And like I said, if the referee or the doctor aren't stopping it, that's the last line of defense is the, is the corner. And if they are willing to... I know the Sean Madden, I think, in the corner said, like, I believe in you. I, we, we believe in you. We know you can do this. So I don't think that stopping the fight was something that they were looking to do in that situation. And like I said, her husband's in the corner. And that it must be painstakingly hard for him to watch and not stop that fight. But if he's not going to stop the fight, I think that she raises a good point. You know, if you if you want to be work the corner of a of a fighter one day and you want to stop the fight, like, you feel like that's the time to do it? If you want to be like John Hackleman, who made a case to stop the fight as well, like I don't think there's a right or wrong answer in, in a situation like that one. I think there are times where fighters do, corners do need to step up, where you can tell their fighter's not with it, where the fighter's like a little bit out of it. And they're, if you say, hey, what day is it? Where are you? They can't give you the answer to that question. You stop that fight. You stop that fight. If you, don't say, if you say, what round are you going into? Stop that fight. But I thought that Warren Murphy... You know, she says she was with it. She remembers it all. Like, I don't know. I, I don't think that people going after her corner are going to help matters. And also the announce team, see, yelling, stop the fight, stop the fight. They're right there cage side, and they're seeing something that they would like to see stopped for obvious reasons. But at the same time, you just call the fight. Like, you're not in the corner. You don't need to plead for these athletes, like, do you think if Cormier was in that kind of situation going into a fifth round or Felder was in that situation, he would have wanted his corners to stop it? I don't think they would have in their careers, in the moment. Maybe that's a mistake. But I think it's always an interesting subject of conversation where people talk about what corners should or shouldn't do. And these the corners often know their fighters better than anybody else. So it's tough to cast aspersions on them in these situations, in my opinion. Johnny Walker defeats Paul Craig. One of the more innovative kind of Johnny Walker-like finishes, just hammer fists um, from standing position. Paul Craig grabs Johnny Walker's leg, refuses to let go. So Walker just threw bomb after bomb after bomb. Backwards hammer fists. And for one night, we got to see the old Johnny Walker again. The, The explosive, unpredictable Johnny Walker with the kind of power that can put anybody away with any sort of strike. And I hope we see more of that Johnny Walker again in the future. I think that's the best Johnny Walker. To live by the sword, die by the sword Johnny Walker. I don't like the point-fighting Johnny Walker. I don't think that's the kind of fighter that he can excel at being. I do think that maybe being that fighter for some time helped sharpen his game, maybe raise his fight IQ a bit. But I think his athleticism, his unique athleticism, and his size and range and explosiveness are what make him... The difference between Johnny Walker being a great fighter and a good fighter. Because the Johnny Walker that fought Tiago Santos, that's a good fighter. The Johnny Walker 
that just scored that kind of a knockout. The one that fought Misha Zirkinov, the one that fought Paul Craig. That's the kind of Johnny Walker that I think can get to a top five level in the division. I mean, he fought Jamal Hill, didn't go his way. Probably the toughest challenger that Jamal Hill faced on his way to the title. No disrespect to Thiago Santos, who beat Johnny Walker, but Johnny Walker's not an easy out. And of course, neither is Thiago Santos. But uh, I think Johnny Walker still has a future. I think he can still get to a top five position at some point. Once again. I think he was top five at some point. So I'm saying once again, correct me if I'm wrong. So this was uh, part of the uh, the sadness contingent of this card. It was the main event of the prelims. Ihor Poteria scores a TKO first round win over Shogun Hua, who said it was going to be his last fight going in, and uh, hopefully he stands by that because, you know, I said the same thing about Frankie Edgar when he faced Gutierrez, and we came to learn that he, that was a fight that he actually had requested. But there are not a lot of light heavyweights on the roster that realistically would have lost the Shogun that we saw on Saturday. And that's not to take away from him. He's 41 years old. He's had absolute wars in the course of his career. Looks like he has trouble like lifting his leg to like a body kick level. And I think Poteria was one of the more beatable opponents you could have given him on the light heavyweight roster. If you go top to bottom, I think that Poteria was a guy that they probably said, like, who could Shogun possibly beat in Brazil and go out triumphantly against? And that was the guy they picked. This isn't an up-and-coming guy. This isn't a big-time prospect. It's a good fighter. Everybody in the UFC is a good fighter. If you've gotten to the UFC, you're one of the best in the world. You know, people say, oh, we're not ranked. doesn't matter. If you're, like, one of, like, 30 or 40 people in each division, you're one of the best fighters in the world. How many people fight? Like, every week, if you go and look at Tapology, how many cards are there worldwide on the weekend? You're talking, like, 30, 40? If each of those has, like, 10 fights talking about like 800 different fighters on any given weekend fighting maybe maybe i'm exaggerating a little bit but like talking about like this is like the 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 elite of the elite that make it to the ufc and i know he got in through contender series and all that blah 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 but this is one of the guys that was probably the more one of the more beatable opponents for shogun i even said shogun deserves better on fight night and I've, i've had time to think about it and think you know i thought to myself like Maybe this was the best they could have done. Like, this was the most winnable fight they could have given him. I, I would have liked to see him fight a more veteran fighter, but there aren't that many in the division right now. You've got Gustafson, was one of the people that was brought up. He just fought OSP last year, so throw that one out the window. Ed Herman came up. I didn't even realize Ed Herman was still uh, on the roster. But that would have been a great one. That's, like, that's probably the one that got away. Like, you do Ed Herman versus Shogun. Like, that's a good last fight. So, uh, Shogun... Is now uh, is now retired. What a tremendous career! And you've heard Luke Thomas gush about the uh, his 2005 and pride and and uh, just how many fights did he have that year? Five fights. It's unbelievable who he beat when he was in uh, in pride. He beat he beat Cyborg Santos in his third career fight. Pretty unbelievable. And then we. Uh, Eventually saw him come to the UFC and become the UFC light heavyweight champion. Beat Leo, knocked out Lyoto Machida in Canada, in Montreal, Quebec. Was the knockout of the night. 
did not defend the title, lost to John Jones in the next fight. It's kind of the perfect storm of uh, being at the wrong place at the wrong time. We had an up-and-coming John Jones just buzzing his way through the uh, UFC at that time. But man, this guy's got some legends on his uh, his docket. He beat... I'll, I'll name the big ones. He beat Little Nog twice. He beat Forrest Griffin. He beat Lyoto Machida, like I mentioned, knockout. After losing a very suspect decision to him in the previous fight. That's why they had an immediate rematch. Knocked out Chuck Liddell. Knocked out Mark Coleman. That was, a, that was an interesting fight. He was actually losing that fight, if I recall. Got the third round knockout on Mark Coleman. Knocked out Alistair Overeem in pride. Submitted Kevin Randleman in pride. Surreal Diabate was a great striker. Beat him in pride. Uh, Ricardo Arona, uh, a second win over Overeem. A third win over Little Nog. Rampage Jackson. Hiromitsu Kanehara, who was really good. Akihiro Gono. Like, crazy list of people that he's beaten, if you're familiar with the history of mixed martial arts and some of the uh, the pioneers of the sport. So, uh, you know, happy trails to Shogun. Hall of Fame career. He's already in the Hall of Fame for a matchup. Just also throw him in the Pioneer Wing or whatever other wing you got going on, because this guy is an absolute legend. And uh, yeah, he probably did deserve better, but at the same time, I'm not sure there was a better option available. Bruno Fajera makes his debut and knocks out Robocop, Gregory Rodriguez, 4 minutes and 13 seconds into the very first round. And uh, I didn't do very good with my picks on uh, on Saturday. But this was one that I got was uh, Fajera by KO plus I think it was plus five hundred. Fajera just has big power, and we've seen in in Rodriguez in Rodriguez's fights he gets caught, he gets hit with big shots, and eventually that kind of fight style catches up with you. And uh, I thought maybe it won't for this fight, but certainly worth a stab with a guy that has the an undefeated guy with the power of uh, Bruno Fajera. So congratulations to him on his, winning his. UFC debut, and speaking of UFC debuts, Melchizel Costa lost his debut to Thiago Moises, took the fight on uh, short notice, and ended up losing uh, via face crank. Uh, and if we're going to look at successful debuts, going back to successful debuts, the Bonfim brothers looked phenomenal. Gabriel Bonfim defeated Munir Lezez, guillotine choke, less than a minute into the very first round. Somehow didn't get a bonus for this, probably should have gotten one. But uh, spectacular Debut for him. Uh, three fights after his brother Ismail got the clubhouse leader for highlight of the year, probably, but knockout of the year for sure in the UFC with that flying knee. Terrence McKinney drops like a tree. Um, unfortunately, lost his mouthpiece right before that, too, which is not, not great. But uh, Ismail Bonfim made it uh, two wins for the Bonfim brothers. First, they won on the same Contender Series card, and now they won in their debuts in Brazil at UFC 283 on a much bigger stage. So kudos to them, both being tough opponents as well. Certainly weren't spoon-fed layups, that's for sure. Jailton Almeida, this guy's got a, a massive future. Defeats Shamil Abdurakhimov, second round, TKO. Man, this guy, this guy is, I've always said, Fighters who have this kind of skill set should just move to heavyweight if you can. 
Like his takedowns are, are solid. His jujitsu is phenomenal. Always attacking. Much faster than most of the heavyweights in the division. This is a guy I think you could put in with top five, top ten guys, and he's got as good a chance as anybody in this heavyweight division. He is a problem. Very eager to see who they put him up against next. I think you can put him up against the Der- the winner of Derek Lewis and uh or even the loser of Derek Lewis and Spivak, I think would be a great matchup for him. But somebody in that kind of ballpark in the heavyweight division for sure. Uh Cody Stamen wins a uh Unanimous decision over Luan Lacerda, uh, teammate of uh, Jose Aldo's over at uh, Nova Uniao. I don't know if you can still consider him a teammate teammate with Aldo retired, but Aldo is also doing boxing soon, so that's kind of cool. And um, we had Nicolas Dalby defeat Warley Alves by decision, split decision win. Josiane Nunes defeats uh, Zara Ferran dos Santos by decision. And Daniel Marcos defeats Simon Oliveira. Neither the body and punches. Uh, I did get a chance on Saturday to watch the event with Charles Jordan. Charles Jordan was in town. He's training with, of course, my good friend, Bazooka Joe Valtellini. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, great to sit and watch the event with Charles and just kind of pick his brain and watch watch him enjoy a card. Just as, you know, as somebody who's watching it on a TV. Man, it's just uh, he's just a great guy. Charles is just uh, always has a smile on his face. Super nice guy. Very, very sharp. And then he comes into the sports center with me, and you'd think that he's been doing it for years. The guy's just knocked out of the park. So uh big thank you to Charles for coming and uh, spending time with me on Saturday night. A lot of fun to spend time with him. And him and his brother, Louis, uh, were, uh, were in town, so... Always great to have the Jordan brothers in uh, in this neck of the woods. Very eager to see what's next for Charles. Doesn't have a fight booked, so I got nothing that I can leak to to you on this podcast and get in trouble for. So I don't know. I mean, I'd get in trouble with Charles, I guess, but yeah, not, nothing to report. Charles is looking for a fight. If you know any featherweights that are available, you know, I'll put you in touch with his manager. UFC featherweights, of course. So uh, there, there it is. That was UFC 283. Uh, Solid card. Now, last week was the debut, uh, the premiere, I guess is probably the better word, of the uh, Power Slap. Now, I'm sure you, if you were listening to this show, you know that I haven't talked about Power Slap. And my reason being is I don't cover Power Slap. I cover mixed martial arts. And Power Slap is not mixed martial arts. You don't hear me talk much about boxing unless it relates to mixed martial arts in some form or fashion. But the reason I want to discuss it here is because it does relate to mixed martial arts in one capacity, one facet, which is we're seeing MMA judges and MMA referees being part of whatever powers lap is. I don't know if you want to call it a sport, a competition, whatever you want to call it. And uh, it's kind of unsettling for me, to be perfectly honest. Now, I don't know who else is going to officiate it. It's not like you have people that have a, a, a long storied background in you know, training in slapping. Like, it's not like you can find people that are like, yeah, I've been training slap. This guy's been in the slap business for 50 years. He should be judging the, this event. He's got a third degree slap belt. There aren't people like that. They don't exist. So I guess once the commission decided to sanction this, they just used their own MMA officials because like they just have to grandfather, they have to like grandfather people in from another sport. It's just weird to me to see. Well, first off, I'm hearing so many people in MMA speak out against this sport. Like, I listened to John Anik, to Anik and Forian, and they were 
Like, they were ripping it and saying, like, this isn't, you know, it's weird to see officials, like, they they mentioned Jason Herzog specifically, be part of this. And, and, and Dr. Davidson, the UFC doctor, like, and I agree with them. I, I mentioned this to John McCarthy, and John McCarthy raised a good point, which was, like, if, if you're going to have officials doing this, like, you, sh- you, you should want competent officials like Herzog and Chris Tayoni and Mark Smith. You want to have people that are going to look out for the best interest of the, the fighters, slappers, whatever you want to call them. So, I, I mean, I guess that that's a good point. But John also says that... Uh, let, me, let me just find his tweet so that I don't uh, misquote the great big John McCarthy. One of the, uh, the pioneers of mixed martial arts. And also one of the, the most important voices when it comes to officiating. All right. Uh, let's see. I'm just going to go back to some of his tweets. Here we go. So he, he quote tweeted me. I said, why are MMA referees and judges being utilized? And have they received formal training on how the bouts, bouts are scored and officiated? Did they have to apply for a certification to officiate? His response was, they are being used in the same way boxing officials were first grandfathered in when MMA started being regulated. You can't have someone certified when there is no certification, but you cannot ask for someone better than Jason, Mark, or Chris as far as knowing when enough, when enough's enough, I guess is what he meant to say. Uh, maybe we're ran out of characters. But then he quote tweeted himself in a subsequent tweet and said, that being said, no licensed Nevada official should be taking part, any part in this. They should take a stand and say, no, I'm not doing that. Every man involved will have to eventually account for their decisions. Sometimes the hardest road is the right road to take. Now, the problem with this is when you start turning down assignments from the commission, you might not get any going forward. Or they might not call you when they need someone for MMA. You might not be their first call. There's a lot of politics and red tapes when it comes to, to these commissions. I'm not saying that's right. Believe me, I am not saying that's right. It's quite the opposite. It shouldn't be that way. But I just find it very uh, off-putting to see really respected people in mixed martial arts act in the capacity of an official for this. I, I don't know. It's just weird to me. Maybe I'm in the minority here. I, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It just seems odd. That's all. I'm not here to dis- discern right or wrong. I mean, these guys are earning a living being a combat sports official. If they feel like they can separate, you know, how they feel about the sport from doing a job, there are a lot of people that work for companies that they don't like, probably. Like, I'm sure there are people out there that are like, yeah, I work for a blank company, but I don't agree with their principles or something along those lines. I'm sure there are tons of people out there like that. So maybe that's how these officials can just kind of say, hey, a job's a job. You know, I... I'm not doing the sport. I'm not competing in the sport. Maybe they can, if they if they have some sort of moral opposition to it, maybe they're okay just saying, hey, I, you know, this is, I'm here to get paid. I can look out for their safety. This is going to happen whether I officiate it or not. So at least with the knowledge that I'm good at what I do, maybe I'm the best person suited to do this. Maybe that's the way that they think about it. I don't know. But I'm just from my own perspective, that was one thing that I just found odd. When I saw all these clips getting shared on uh, social media. And that's really what the sport is, competition or whatever you want to call it, was created for. Was to create virality. Like viral moments that get spread around. That's, that's why it exists. I saw tons of it on my, on my feed. 
I don't know. Not for me. I'll tell you that much. I, I, like I said, I cover mixed martial arts. I don't have time to watch anything else. <laughs> like that's that's the reality of the situation. Like if it's not mixed martial arts, even though I'll only watch the biggest of biggest boxing events. Like I didn't even watch Tank Davis. I didn't watch his last fight. And that's a pretty big fight. Like I'm watching like the Fury Usics of the world. And I'm not watching like uh, Deontay Wilder against dude he just beat his name I can't, Hellenius is that Robert Hellenius is that his name I think I think that might be it I'm not even watching that so I'm not gonna go out of my way to watch an, a whole new competition of some sort like doesn't matter if other people want to watch it hey that's on them like that's cool I don't watch baseball either I know it's totally different things I know that there's brain injuries involved here and like I'm not here defending the sport, but I mean, it's up to people what they want to do with their spare time. Not up to me. I'm not going to do it. I, I I think it's a reckless sport, if you want to call it that. I think we know what this is. I don't think anybody's saying it's not something that, it, like something it isn't. Somebody getting slapped really hard and suffering a brain injury. Like, and there's no intelligent defense, which is what combat sports is all about. It's not for me. I'll just put it that way. And I, uh, but again, just seeing MMA officials associated with it is just odd for me. And I, I'm glad to hear John McCarthy give his two cents on it because that, I feel like that carries weight. I think John is one of the, uh, the best minds that this sport has right now. Especially when it comes to anything related to officiating, commissions, all of that. Speaking of which, we haven't seen any Douglas Crosby uh, sightings uh, thus far in 2023, have we? Hmm. Uh, if you recall, a wise man said that after the head of the Mohegan Tribe Commission, Mike Mazzulli, put out that notice about Doug Crosby and says any sort of um, sanctions that we issue will not be publicly disclosed. It's all done behind closed doors. A wise man with two thumbs said, they may not disclose this, but if you don't see him judging for a while, you'll, you'll realize something's happened. Like that's the big takeaway when you hear something like that. All right, any other big stories? Uh, Luke Rockhold was on the uh, MMA Hour with Ariel Hawani and says he has been released from his UFC contract and is uh, a free agent and can explore other avenues. I mean, he had announced his retirement after his last fight, but in recent months, seemed like uh, he was going to uh, want to continue his combat career in some regard, and now he is free to do that outside of the UFC. Very interested to see what happens with him. Because, you know, it's different to fight in the middleweight division in Bellator, which historically has been a very, very shallow division. Not quite now. Like, now I think it actually has some good talent compared to, you know, the days where uh, Rafael Carvalho was the champion and things like that. I think that there's more talent now, but I think he can hang with those guys in Bellator. I think in the in the PFL, if he wants to fight at 205 in their tournament, I think that would make a lot of sense. Like, I think he's got good options. Especially in PFL, like, not having to cut the middleweight, I think he could fight whatever, a handful of times 
in a year if he's winning at 205 pounds. Uh, John Kavanaugh, also speaking of the MMA Hour, John Kavanaugh was on the MMA Hour and said he would be willing to bet his house that Conor McGregor will fight this year. So take that uh, for what you will. But uh, I think that's a pretty good sign if you're interested in seeing the uh, return of, uh, of one Conor McGregor. A couple bout announcements. Uh, Song Yadong taking on Ricky Simone, April the 22nd. We also had uh, Billy Quarantillo announced to be facing uh, Edson Barboza. The um, Women's Flyweight Championship will be on the line at UFC 285. Valentina Shevchenko against Alexa Grosso. So we have Moreno winning the uh, undisputed belt. We have Yair potentially fighting for the... Uh, or fighting for the interim featherweight championship, not potentially. He's booked to fight for the interim championship um, in Australia. Then we have the uh, England card, and then in March you got Grosso. So three out of four pay-per-views have Mexican fighters in title fights. It's a great sign for the future. And then there was also rumblings that Irene Aldana was going to get the next shot at Amanda Nunes. So Mexican MMA is really, you know, looking good in terms of the future. Um, so a couple of bout announcements. Um, thank you to MMA Junkie. They do a great roundup on their website of uh, upcoming bouts. So I'm going to read a couple here. Um, in Australia, Austin Lane is out of his fighting as Junior Taffa, not to be confused with his brother Justin Taffa. Junior Taffa, awesome kickboxer who has transitioned to mixed martial arts, taking on Waldo Cortez Acosta, both guys undefeated. Someone's O must go. Valentina Shevchenko taking on Alexa Grasso. For the women's flyweight title, as I mentioned. That is taking place uh, UFC 285. Some Bellator announcements uh, recently. You have uh, Valentin Moldovsky taking on Linton uh, Vassell. That's uh, Bellator 292. Uh, also on that card, James Gallagher against Leandro Ego. And then we also had announced today um, that Bellator is doing a, a card at the Pachanga Resort in California. I think it's Bellator 293. That's going to feature two Canadians. you got Aaron Jeffrey facing John Salter at middleweight and Mandel Nalo taking on J.J. Wilson. So uh, some there's are some Canadians in Bellator getting some action. Uh, main event for March 11th announced. you got Marab Dwalashvili against Piotr Jan. I've been uh, calling for that fight for a while. I think that's, that makes a whole lot of sense logically. Plus, Jonathan Martinez taking on Saeed Nurmagomedov. Great matchmaking there. I can't wait to see that one. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and then... In London, March 18th, UFC 286, you've got Jafel Filio taking on Mohamed Mokhaev. Filio making his uh, promotional debut. You've got Makwan Amirkani taking on Jack Shore. That's at featherweight, so Shore moving up a division. You've got the debut of Cage Warriors middleweight champion Christian Leroy Duncan taking on Dusko Todorovic. And you've got Israeli prospect Yanal Ashmaz taking on Sam Patterson. And then a couple more, April 8th. Luana Pinheiro, who is the uh, girlfriend of, uh, if I'm not mistaken, of, uh, why can't I remember his name? Flyweight division. It's like a top 10 fighter. I can't remember his name. I've got to look it up now. I'm sorry, everybody. Didn't get a whole lot of sleep last night, let's be honest. Uh, Mateus Nicolau. I think it's, she's the girlfriend or fiance of Mateus Nicolau. She's taking on Michelle Waterson. Now going by uh, Michelle Waterson Gomez, her husband, uh, Josh Gomez. A little hyphenated last name. Uh, this one I love. Ignacio Bahamendez against uh, Nicolas Mata. Great fight. 
And I also love Christian Rodriguez against Raul Rosas Jr. That is a tough, tough matchup for Rosas Jr. Christian Rodriguez is the truth. This kid is really, really good. If Rosas Jr. is able to get a win against him, that I think is going to speak major volumes about his future in this, uh, in this sport. Steve Garcia against Shailen Nurdenbeka. Nurdenbeka's uh, first fight since that uh, highly controversial fight against Derek Minner. April 15th. Uh, let's find some of the bigger fights on this card. Uh, I mentioned Edson Barboza against uh, Billy Quarantillo. Chris Gutierrez taking on Pedro Munoz. I like that fight. Jillian Robertson taking on Piero Rodriguez. Uh, Daniel Zellhuber getting his second uh, shot in the UFC taking on uh, Lando Venata. And uh, Dana Batgare taking on Brady Heastand. I like that fight too. April 22nd. And again, all these fight announcements, uh, I'll give courtesy to uh, MMA Junkie to do a, a good roundup on their site. So check that out. Uh, Norma Dumont against uh, Carol Hosa. We've got uh, Jared Gordon against Bobby Green. Love that fight. And the uh, previously mentioned Ricky Simone against Song Yadong is on the uh, April 22nd card as well. So there you have it. Those are some of the other uh, big fights that have been announced in the last week. Uh, I like them all. I just went to see how long I've been talking for, and it's been an hour. So I could probably just bounce now, right? Nothing else, uh, any any other big stuff that I've missed? Uh, looking, looking, looking. Well, <sighs> Francis Ngannou, not a whole lot of news on him, but we've heard Tyson Fury mention his name. We heard today uh, Steven Espinoza in an interview said that... Uh, they are thinking of pursuing Francis Ngannou for a combo kind of contract that would involve him fighting, doing boxing on Showtime and then also fighting in Bellator. That's kind of cool. Uh, the PFL are interested. So lots of interest. No shortage of interest for Francis Ngannou, not surprisingly. So there we go. Uh, that, that, I believe, is, uh, is all that we have for today. I'll be interviewing Don Davis uh, from the PFL this week, so you can find that at tsn.ca slash UFC. I'll probably also uh, put that out next week on the interview edition of the TSN MMA show, so stay tuned for that. No event this week. It's a week off in the UFC. I think the only major MMA promotion doing anything, if I'm not mistaken, is the, uh, the PFL, the Challenger Series. Am I right? Yeah, that's starting. Challenger Series launches on Friday. Week one from uh, Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida, of the PFL Challenger Series. So that's the only, like, I guess, major MMA that's going on this coming week. Another note, I didn't hear anything about the uh, Brazil card being a sellout. So that might have ended the streak. But I, I'm going to find out about that. And uh, then, of course, uh, not this week, but the week after, we've got a very strange event. You've got... Uh, Derek Lewis taking on Sergey Spivak, but the uh, main card starts at, I think, 1 a.m. Because this card was supposed to take place in South Korea, Seoul, South Korea. Got moved to the uh, UFC Apex, and they kept the time the same to cater to that market. There's a lot of Asian fighters on this particular card. So, uh, hopefully you're willing to stay up late. And the finals of the Road to the UFC Second season are going to take place. Second season? I'm reading that off Wikipedia. I feel like it's only been one season, so unless each subsequent tournament has been a different season, I have no idea. Either way, lots of fun fights on that card. Uh, that card, I believe, will not be on TSN. That will be on uh, on Fight Pass exclusively. So 
you can tune in there, but we will be certainly talking about it uh, on next week's show and previewing it. Actually, before we go, I've got an interview I'd like to play you with PFL chairman and uh, founder Don Davis, who uh, I spoke to about the upcoming PFL season, some key free agents that are out there. He's always a wealth of information when it comes to the PFL and the big plans that they have. And it looks like there's going to be some pretty big expansion in the coming years for the PFL. So without further ado, here is PFL founder and chairman Don Davis. Happy to be joined by the chairman and founder of the PFL, Don Davis. Uh, it's a pleasure catching up with you, Don. And I think the big question on everybody's mind with the PFL right now and every other combat sports organization not named the UFC, what's the interest level like in Francis Ngannou, who recently became a free agent? Oh, come on. You know us well enough. We do all of our business uh, behind closed doors, blue chip nature. You know, we don't kiss and tell here. But obviously, with the signing of Jake Paul, the announcement of our pay-per-view super fight division, the true 50-50 economic partnership that PFL is open for business, you can assume that we are a destination for the biggest fighters in the world, and we are talking to anyone who wants to control their own destiny and make a bigger payday and have more control. So that would be a fair assumption. Yeah, I, well, I imagine every combat sports organization certainly is interested in Francis and Gannou. With the launch of the pay-per-view division, how many pay-per-views, I guess the Superfight division rather, how many pay-per-views are you guys planning for 2023? Look, the core product of the PFL League season, regular season, playoff championship, will still remain the main event at PFL. Win in advance, lose and go home, meritocracy. We're going to do two, two pay-per-view Superfights outside of the league season, but the main product remains the core league season. Does that make it a little bit easier on the PFL to put together the biggest show possible for the Superfight division? If you're only doing two in a year, that means you can really stack them. And will the results of the tournament have anything to do with the uh, Superfight division and the pay-per-view? Is the, is the, I guess, tournament finale going to be one of those Superfight pay-per-views? To your first question, yes. Look, this is going to be the best of the best, the most interesting of the interesting, the biggest spectacular of the biggest spectacular. We're only doing two a year, so fans will love them. This is not going to be like UFC doing 12 a year, where if it's a belt, it's always a pay-per-view. The championship of PFL going forward, you're going to see remain on broad TV. You're going to see the biggest and most exciting fights outside the league season be pay-per-view and only two a year, very bespoke, very big events. And in terms of how they may cross over, your other question, Kayla Harrison now moves to pay-per-view. You know, she is a two-time PFL champion. It's very legitimate for there now to be a path in the PFL. If you, if you win PFL Europe, you might go to the PFL Challenger Series. You win PFL Challenger Series like the Postman did last year, you're immediately in the league season. If you become a big enough star, you can graduate to pay-per-view. So for the first time ever, if you're a fan or you're a fighter, PFL has global four fight franchises for you to watch or you to fight it. Now, it feels like a shakeup is upon us in the PFL when it comes to the women's divisions. There's going to be a 145 division tournament, it seems. And you just announced a flyweight uh, PFL Challenger Series episode. Are we going to see two different women's tournaments this year? And is the 155 division no more? This year in the core league season, you will see 145. And it might be the best 145 on the planet. Better than Bellator, better than UFC. Now, the other women's divisions, we're going to start to experiment with, as you mentioned. 
So whether it's the Challenger Series or whether it's PFL Europe, you're going to start to see us cultivate and develop talent in other weight classes in the women's divisions. I'm sure the PFL would have preferred to announce this via press release, but it seems like word has gotten out that the season's going to start in April in Las Vegas uh, at the theater at the Virgin uh, Hotel or whatever along those lines, um, according to, I think, the Nevada State Athletic Commission that came up in their recent meetings. Can you confirm that? Uh, I don't want to ruin all the fun for fans, uh, but the season will start April 1st. It will start in Las Vegas. It will start at the Virgin Hotel. Um, and once again, 10 events this year. April 1st, it's starting live, primetime ESPN. All events this year are simulcast. ESPN main channel, ESPN Plus, April 1st. Now, I've got a tough one for you, and I'm, I'm only going to let you give me one name. If you were to sign Francis Ngannou, which current PFL fighter has the best chance of beating him? You know what I'd love to see as a fan? Because, you know, we're always fan first, fighter first. We start with that versus, you know, how you manufacture controversy. You know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see the 2023 season be the road to Francis. I want to see the heavyweight division fight it out. And whoever wins the 2023 heavyweight division, challenge Francis in the pay-per-view at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. So I'm consistent in terms of meritocracy and opportunity. So I want to see them fight it out. I want to see the best of the heavyweights this year go at it. And I want to see that champion of this year take on Francis in the pay-per-view. I think that'd be fantastic. So I'd let it be decided that way. I'd watch all those fights this year to see who emerged to take on the king of the hill. Well, you talk about being fighter first. I mean, we're talking about purse money. We're talking about a million dollars if you win that tournament. And then a 50-50 equity split, if that's the headlining fight, which I assume it would be, if Francis Ngannou somehow ends up in the PFL. Well, remember, in our pay-per-view super fight division, the headline fighters will get 50% revenue share. Now, Francis is a big deal. <laughs> so he can get a little bit more than, 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 than his share of that 50-50. But, but when you look at the world of your fighter, it's the best day to be an MMA fighter. Never been a better day than today. Last month, you had one option in pay-per-view, one legitimate option, UFC. Today, you have two great options, UFC or PFL. Two different models, two different companies, both great places. And so if you're a fighter, explore your options, see what platform is best for you. We have the same distribution as UFC. ESPN in the United States, to zone internationally. So if you're a pay-per-view fighter, you don't compromise at all. Great production quality, global distribution. It's just, where do you want? Do you want to own your own fights and have control and have a partnership or want to have their model? Your choice. Now, you guys made some waves, of course, in uh, January, early January, uh, which I guess is this month, with the signing of Jake Paul. Um, what would be a realistic expectation for him to actually debut in mixed martial arts? And what kind of opponent do you think would be warranted. I, I mean, I think him, I, I'm not trying to um, be insulting to Jake here. I mean, this, this, we saw this with Clarissa Shields. It doesn't matter how good you are at any other dialect of combat sports. If you're new to the sport, you need kind of an equal uh, opponent. So what kind of opponents are going to be looking for in order to match up with a guy who has uh, very little experience in mixed martial arts like Jake Paul? Yeah, look, Aaron, great question. As always, you know, you're one of the smartest analysts in MMA. Look, there are two parts of this deal when you take a step back. The bigger part of this deal is Jake Paul being a marketer, creator, and promoter of the fights that he is not in for PFL. 
he is now exclusively on our platform to raise the profile of other fighters and other fights in the super fight division and in the league. Jake has more followers and more engagements than the UFC himself. <laughs> so his ability to raise the brand of PFL and raise the engagement profile of fights he is not in is the biggest deal and the biggest news here. And it's already taken effect. The second piece of the deal is him as a fighter eating his own cooking. He's made over $50 million in just three years. And he's saying, hey, the place I'm cho choosing in MMA is PFL. This is the best platform. And I'm gonna be the first fighter to sign to this platform. So he is essentially saying, I'm gonna eat my own cooking here. And now as a fighter, I think what he's impressed everybody by, whether you love him or hate him, whether you think he's gonna win or whether he's gonna lose, is he does the work. He does the work. He is not taking MMA lightly. So is he gonna be ready this year? No. Has he already started to work? Yes. <laughs> Will he essentially evolve as a fighter? Of course, just as he is in boxing. So to me, the thrill is, what is his journey? We don't know. How will he succeed? We don't know. How far can he go? We don't know. Just as in boxing, though, the thrill is in the journey and the story and the unknown. But he is going to put everything he has into it, just as he did in boxing. Well, the big takeaway I had there from what you just said is he's not going to be ready this year. Does that mean we're not going to see him compete in mixed martial arts in 2023? I think it's most likely his first fight will be this time next year. So you're thinking 2024 for him to debut in, in mixed martial arts? That's my best guess. And in terms of an opponent, do you think it's going to be somebody taken from other sports uh, like his boxing opponents have been? They've been predominantly mixed martial artists that he's been boxing against. Could we see a boxer in there against them in the mixed martial arts realm? Look, with Jake, you never count him out. He is so creative. I think, look, he offered Nate Diaz the fight. That fight's real. That fight's been offered, um, and those contracts have been exchanged. So he could start extremely high with the two-fight deal he's offered Nate, boxing and then MMA. So he could start dead on, straight on, like he did with Nate Diaz, or he could start as he did in boxing, working his way up through, call it, unconventional opponents. So I think Jake is open to all different ways to entertain fans and develop himself in MMA. We'll have to see how that journey unfolds. All right, so big hypothetical here. Let's say Nate agrees. He does boxing and then MMA. Would the boxing match take place outside of the, the boundaries of the PFL? It could be either way, but obviously Nikisa and Jake have proven how adept they are at doing it through MVP, so they could certainly do that on their own platform. But we partner with them on all kind of stuff going forward, so we're glad to help them in any way they'd like. They've become equity holders, Jake and Nikisa. What do you think is the biggest asset that they bring to the table outside of the combat environment in terms of how it'll grow the PFL as a brand? Yeah, if you look at each of them individually, um, Jake is the best marketer and promoter we've seen in combat sports ever, ever, maybe since Muhammad Ali. And with Nikisa, he's one of five people in the world that understand the economics and financials and the, uh, of pay-per-view, maybe one of the five. So we have one of the best businessmen in pay-per-view and one of the best promoters and marketers in pay-per-view, now exclusively on the PFL platform to help us build that division. Couldn't be more exciting. Once again, if you're a pay-per-view fighter, we've added muscle, expertise to our already existing, call it global distribution and, and, and renowned production ability. So this place is now ready for you to build your brand, make more money, have more control.
The 2022 season is now, of course, in the rearview mirror, but I did I did take issue with one thing that happened in the 2022 season that I'm hoping you can expand upon. Yes, there, tell me. <laughs> there were two fighters uh, that had made it to, I believe it was either the quarterfinals or semifinals, but they were for, of Russian descent. And those particular cards in their weight classes were held in the United Kingdom where they were not, I guess, permitting uh, visas for Russian athletes. And as a result, they were disqualified from the tournament, even though they if we're talking about meritocracy, had gotten to where they needed to be in order to compete for that million dollars. Um, what can be done to safeguard against that? And what, what's your opinion on that happening? Because certain fights were moved to different locations, like in, into New York, for example, with the Anthony Pettis fight. Why, was the, why were they not given those same, I guess, liberties? Um, so first of all, we had always set the schedule for those playoff events to be in London. Um, so those, those were long set. Number two is, Obviously, those are UK government restrictions, not PFL restrictions. Number three, we were disappointed. We think that's very unfair. Um, obviously, we, we fought hard to have those fighters as part of this tournament. We, we were upset that those fighters were disqualified by the UK government being on those tournament. So I agree with you, Aaron. It was very unfortunate. But our schedule had been set, um, and we, it was out of our control. Those are complete government decisions. Um, but, but we don't like it. Um, you know, we, we obviously support our fighters and, and we hope that that would never happen again. But this could have been a potential barrier of entry. Why not just move those fights to New York? But just for, we can't do, I mean, the whole schedule and the whole broadcast and the whole production and all the fighters have long been set. That, that is not possible. You know, this is like, a, you can't just move, you know, one fight. Um, you know, for one fighter when the whole season is set. You know, this is not like a one-off event that UFC might do for, for one fight, correct? Just not, not logistically possible at all. And are those fighters continuing with the PFL into this season? Yes. All right, well, that's good news. Uh, it's good to see them get another opportunity at the million dollars this year. Absolutely. Uh, and, and Shane Burgos, 155 pounds or 145 pounds in the tournament? Well, you got to have some fun. Wait and see. All right. Well, while I'm on the topic of Shane Burgos, one of his close training partners, Mike Trezano, put on one hell of a fight in New York uh, for the UFC back in November. He became a free agent and he was recently removed from the UFC's roster page. Is there any chance he is signing or has signed with the PFL? Um, if he had signed, we would have made that announcement. Um, we're pretty well set on our, on, our, on our schedule this year. We had close to 300 fighters for 30 open spots. As you know from covering us in the past, we retain all fighters that make the playoffs, all fighters that really demonstrated, you know, call it up-and-coming potential, and all fighters that are fan favorites. So that has us retain about 60% of our fighters each year, and about 40% of the roster is open. We had unprecedented number of fighters from around the world um, want to get into the PFL this year. But that, that roster is largely set, and we'll be making those announcements um, probably by the middle of the Challenger Series. Because um, also the Challenger Series has some slots, you know, eight fights in the Challenger Series, eight contracts, one in the Challenger Series. They get into the league this year. That creates a lot of meritocracy and excitement. But the rest of the roster is pretty much set. It feels like last year is going to be or this year is going to be the last year that we see the tournament as it is now with the expansion that you guys have had globally with all these different PFL Challenger Series across the board and all these different countries and locations. It feels like you guys are going to open things up a little bit more in the future because there are just, like you said, so many people that want to get into this tournament, unless you are thinking of keeping the tournament as is and just making those spots so lucrative and so uh, difficult to come by that the Challenger Series is going to be 
you know, have, have real weight to it in terms of who ends up winning those particular uh, tournaments. You'll, you'll continue to see the, the core league season, the regular season playoff and championship stay as it is. It's going to be like NFL Sundays. Every game matters. Every single fight matters. Um, what you're seeing is the roster get better and better. This year, 28% of our roster is ranked in the top 25 in the world. Last year was 25%. The year before, 20%. The year before, 15%. That's the same percentage of top 25 ranked fighters as the UFC. What? That's an incredible statistic. So we have curation and great fighters and great matchups. So we like to think that the PFL league season will continue to get better and better. It'll be like NFL Sunday. You want to watch every single game. And so that will stay in place. That will get better and better. More and more fighters um, will have to raise their game globally to stay in that. But we will continue to have other fight products, as you said. PFL Europe this year will be the home to the best European fighters. PFL Challenger Series, which starts this Friday in Fubo, call it the home to the best up-and-coming fighters like Dana White's Challenger Series, pay-per-view for the biggest stars in the world. So, yes, new fight franchises, but the flagship, the core, core league product, will be the home to call it top 25-ranked fighters in the world. And hopefully we get that roster to maybe 50% of that roster to be top 25 ranked in 2024, 2025. And people, it'll blow people's mind. Every single fight will just be a war. Well done. Very much looking forward to it. Can't wait to see what you guys put together for those two pay-per-view events this year. It seems like you guys are uh, you know, aiming for as high as, as you possibly can in terms of the, uh, the level of quality that you can bring in. So I appreciate your time. Thank you for this. And uh, looking forward to the, uh, the upcoming season and the Challenger Series starting uh, this Friday on Fubo TV. Thank you. As we've often said, this MMA market's growing and we're on our way to be a co-leader. We appreciate all the fans and what they've done for us this year. So thank you and we'll see you Friday, February 27th on Fubo and April 1st on ESPN. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.